Thank you for listening to Dream 10X Radio, where we interview people attempting to live extraordinary lives. Our twofold purpose is to both direct and inspire people bold enough to do the same. Dream 10X. Face your fears and make your life count. Hi, and welcome to episode four of the Dream 10X podcast. In this episode, we talk to a woman who beat a bunch of men in the 2000 national team um, canoe races because there were no categories for women to compete and she really wanted to race. So they let her race in the men's category and she walked away with a gold medal and a bronze medal. And um, I find it very amazing that there were no categories for women and um, not only at the U.S. national level, but there, are absolutely, there were absolutely no categories for women to compete at the international level. And so the uh, International Canoeing Committee, I guess, is apparently really backward. And um, it's almost akin to the days where we had separate drinking fountains for blacks and whites. Um, yet this is 2020 um, and we were just now getting to the point where women are allowed to compete in canoeing at the international level. And in fact, in 2020 Tokyo, the uh, committee has now said that women are allowed to compete at the International Olympics. So, and and Pam um, Boatler, the woman that we're speaking to in this this episode, has been instrumental in helping women get to that point. Um, She's been leaning heavily into the rights and um, uh, pushing on uh, the committee in charge of these rules and regulations and um, has has been a a key key player in in helping women get to the level where they can uh, get to the get to the place where they're able to compete at this international level. So it's been a real eye opener for me and uh, a privilege to be able to, to talk to her on this podcast. Yeah, Pam, I've known Pam for many years and she's a great friend and she's always so positive and motivating and thoughtful and and so it's just been really lovely getting to know her and one thing that really impacted me was her philosophy on mindfulness and well-being and how to be your best self every day and live your best life and have the best performance and that's eating right, getting enough sleep, again, being mindful. So it's feeding your mind, body, spirit. And uh, so that had a tremendous impact on me and changing how I operate in the world. Yeah, that that was a good takeaway for me as well. Um, Trying to escape mediocrity requires a lot of work and we all only have 24 hours a day. And so somewhere in there, you've got to cook for yourself, you've got to eat well, you've got to sleep, you've got to get a good sleep. And so everybody's on the same playing field as far as that's concerned. And um, so it's all about trying to maximize the time that you have where you're actually putting in work to do something above and beyond whatever mediocre is. And so um, I found that that inspiring as well to to hear her talk about how she tries to manage her energy in terms of um, her food intake and her sleep. And um, also I found it interesting about how she um, uses, uh, not I don't, I don't want to keep using the term dreams, but um, visioning. Vis- visioning things that aren't yet reality. She says she wakes up in the morning and she thinks about all the women around the world and, 
and where she wants them to be able to compete and um, so she can continue leaning into those rights for, for these women so they can compete at the international level. Very powerful, I think. Yep, definitely. Love this episode. So please enjoy our interview with Pam Boatler, national team canoeist, and um, she's a, she continues to canoe uh, well into, I guess she's retired now in terms of that. Not, not professionally, but no. canoe. she's <laughs> yeah. not competing at international level. She's a retired canoeist, I guess, right? Yeah. Okay. Pam Boatler, please enjoy this, this interview with Pam Boatler. It's August 2nd, 2020. Our guest today is the president and chief paddling enthusiast at Women Can International, a consultant and co-director at the Triathlet Project, and program manager at the Department of Defense. She was the first woman to compete in canoeing at the 2000 U.S. Sprint Kayak Championships, competing against the men in the intermediate class. The intermediate class is a bridge class for men, jumping from the junior to the senior rank. And she left with a bronze and gold medal. She has been a key player in paving the way for equality and equity in women in Olympic and international canoe racing as an athlete and activist. And after 17 years of lobbying for inclusion, the 2017 International Olympic Committee announced the inclusion of women's canoe events equal to the men for the Tokyo Olympics for the first time ever. Please welcome Pam Boatler. Women in rowing, I know you all are rowers, but women, I believe, have not even had equal events um, to men in rowing. And I think in 20, in the Tokyo Olympics, women will finally have a four, a women's four event, a cockless four, I believe, that they haven't had before. Um, but I think we were caught up in the same storyline that women have had in many sports. Um, since the very beginning, women weren't allowed to run more than 800 meters for how many years that this sport canoeing was considered far too masculine for women in those early years. So in 1924, the International Olympic Committee included canoeing as a demonstration sport, canoe kayak as a demonstration sport. And there was only for men and it was in cano canoes and kayaks. And my club, the Washington Canoe Club, actually helped Canada demonstrate canoe kayak. And then it officially included canoe and kayak for the 1936 Olympics, but women still were just considered, well, you can paddle in the kayaks, you can sit and paddle with a double blade, but canoeing, that's really for men. And I think they were just felt that it would, there was a myth going around that it would damage a woman's reproductive organs, causing infertility, causing lopsided breasts. So we had a lot of the same myths that were discussed about women rowing, women doing gym, certain gymnastics moves. Um, so it just took a lot longer to get the gender equity memo in our sport. And we're one of the last Olympic sports to get gender equality. And I think our, our international federation realized that you're going to get booted from the Olympics if you don't get your gender equality act together. And that's what happened. So that's incredible. It still blows my mind. Um, yeah. Coming from a man, of course, <laughs> it's, <surprising laughs> to hear such things, it's refreshing to hear that it's shocking to you, too. But yes, it's been a long road, but we are, we are grateful to have many men in power who realized that they had mothers and wives and sisters and daughters who actually wanted the same opportunities that they had. And I think those enlightened ones were the ones who fought for us because they, they were the ones in positions of power. So we needed to have our voices elevated by them. But now we need more women 
and um, and women of color and uh, and from different countries to get greater representation to change the conversation in all sports generally. Still, can you take us back to uh, 2000 nationals competition where you ended up competing against the men? How did you get to the point where um, you decided that you really wanted to compete so much that you were willing to compete against the men? And how, just how did that all transpire? Well, and that's a great question. So I had been doing sprint canoe in, I'm sorry, sprint kayak at the Washington Canoe Club since 1996. And so kayaks are where you sit in in a boat and paddle with a double bladed paddle and you have a you have a, a rudder so you can steer mm. and the canoe events are you kneel on one knee and you paddle on one side so it's a single blade event but men always did it and i never questioned it well in 1999 so we're going to back up a little bit in 1999 our canoe club had a women's canoe event at a, at a summer regatta and i didn't think anything of it but it's like my teammate kelly rhodes she did high kneel occasionally just for play because her boyfriend had gone to an olympic trials earlier and uh so i did that first little club race and there were three women that did that race and that if, if i don't know if you've had these pivotal moments in your life where you find your purpose <laughs> but that was kind of a race where i sort of discovered my purpose but it was through failure which mm. uh, maybe can come up later in conversation but i did i'd never you know i was only playing around in the boat a little bit it didn't really mean anything but i was the gun went off and i was winning it was a 500 meter race which is equivalent to about 800 meters in track and field from a time standpoint so let's say it's just under three minutes or two and a half minutes and i was i was winning that race and nobody was expecting me to particularly be to beating my teammate kelly and about three meters from the finish line i still obviously had a lot of mental work to do at the time but i saw this big orange buoy at the finish line and i heard people cheering and i freaked out a little bit and i i took a very wobbly stroke for my last last of three strokes and i ended up going in face first right before the finish line and well actually that's what a hundred people did on the on the finish line on the shoreline which was kind of devastating to hear at first (laughs) but it was kind of this weird like for First time ever, even though I heard this collective moan from the shore, like first time, like Pam's finally doing something worthwhile. And um, and I totally, utterly failed publicly. Mm. And But for whatever reason, in that moment, I didn't care because I did something that I didn't think that I could do. And I did something that people didn't think women could do. And I thought it was really cool. And um, at that time, I had already met this woman, Sheila Kuiper from Canada, who was paving the way for women in Olympic canoeing at the time in Canada, as as Toronto was bidding against Beijing for the 2008 Olympics. The 1998 was when Toronto and Canada was bidding. So I met her around this around this same time, and so I had her in the back of my mind, and I just I just figured like, not only I can do. Um, I want to be a part of something bigger than myself. To, I want more women to be able to do this and to be allowed to do it. And we have our own events. So it, it was just kind of a weird, pivotal moment for me where I sort of found my life purpose. And that moment, fast forward, Sheila Kuiper invited me in March of, 20, March of 2000 and a group of women from New York, a bunch of dragon boat paddlers. Dragon boat is another big boat 
paddle, big, big boat canoe, canoe sport. She, they invited us um, to go to Mexico City just for a women's canoe camp at the Olympic training camp at the Olympic training center. And so I went with maybe nine other women and got a chance to paddle with Sheila and other people. We had uh, access to all the top coaches there at Mexico had some of the best canoe men in the world at the time, some of the top women kayakers as well. But the Cuban men's national team was training there as well. And they had some Olympic medalists that were training. So we were in this amazing Olympic environment. And here we were given just full access to their entire facilities. We stayed at the training center. And that was where I heard that USA Canoe Kayak, they changed their bylaws to allow women into the men's intermediate class, which is sort of where juniors can't just jump right into the seniors. It's a really big jump from junior to senior, as you well know. So they created this intermediate class to kind of let people kind of get their, get a little stronger. And so there were three events open to women and they were still called men's events though. And that it was then there. I'm just like, I want to do this. I just want to hang up my kayak paddle <laughs> that I had been paddling the last few years. I said, I, I want to be one of the first. And that's what I did. And I did the best I could. When I got to nationals, it was at Lake Lanier Canoe Kayak Club in Georgia. Yep. And I had never paddled in a laned course before. So, you know, in rowing that you have to stay straight, yep. you know, stay up, stay up, go straight, finish. Yep. Um, so I had never paddled on a course with lanes before. So my whole goal was literally just stay up, go straight, finish. And I mm. did the, I did all of the events, the 500, 1,000 in the singles. And then I did the double C2 event, they allowed my Canadian friend, Heather McNee, who was a master's paddler at the time, they allowed us to be an entry in the, in the, in the men's C2 doubles 500 meter event. Even though she was international, they allowed it just so we could have the entry. And we ended up winning by less than a second, by 0.75 seconds. And it was wow. like this really funny joke. And, um, but everybody was really cool about it, but it was just such this, such a cool experience to, I told Heather, I was just like, let's just stay low stroke rate and just smooth. And I think we'll do okay. Cause again, all we have to do is stay up, go straight finish. But it was, and anyway, we ended up winning. And I, I did get a bronze medal in the men's C1 1000 event. Um, but yeah, that was pretty pivotal for me as well. But the next year, USA Canoe Kayak, they sort of switched their bylaws again, where they're like, okay, we're not really ready for these canoe events because there's not enough women out there. You know, that's a common thing is that, gosh, because there's no women paddling canoes, we can't have events where it should be the reverse. You offer them and then people will come. Anyway, they they opened all of the men's events in at the national championships in 2001, and they renamed it from men's to open. Mm -hmm. So I competed in the men's open events, which meant that I got to line up next to our Olympic male athletes, which was a little hard because you just get waked out really early. But what was funny about that year is that I competed in enough singles and doubles events, and I even competed in a C4 men's four-person event, we won. Um, I competed in enough events where national rankings at the time were based solely on points. Well, I scored enough points in 2001 to be ranked eighth in men's canoe. Well, now they had a decision to make of when they named the national A team and B team, if it's only based on points. Pam was the number eight paddler when they published the national A and B team. They chose the number nine points <gasps> man. 
And so, no you know, I, at the time I didn't really, I mean, people knew me. I was an older athlete at this time. So um, I'm, you know, at that time I was what, 33, 33 years old or something like 32 years old. Um, so I'm older and, you know, I don't think people really paid me that, you know, and now people take 20 year olds more seriously than someone in their early thirties in these kind of sports. But anyway, um, so I just asked the executive director, I'm just like, I'm not trying to be a complainer or anything, but I'm just wondering how do you justify putting that person on the national B team if it's all based on points and I was forced to race against the men. Um, so it, it, I started to learn that I need to win a war, not a battle. Mm. So I had to let, let that go. And what they did was they reshifted the publication and they made me all by myself over on the national women's canoe team, you know, national A team. And they just sort of put me all by myself for the women, <laughs> which was good in some ways, but it sort of, it was, it was their solution. Mm. To, and they, they, they no longer used points at the Nationals <laughs> to choose the Nationals because I totally exploited that. But anyway, but I learned that um, I actually became a board member that year for USA Canoe Kayak. So I wanted to be at the table and be a part of the conversation. Um, in 2002, they, the USA Canoe Kayak did change their bylaws again to actually women give women a league of their own. So they wrote the schedule so women and girls had equal events in every boat and age category and we were the second country in the world to do that behind canada and now fast forward to 2020 we've got 55 plus countries that have women's canoe at the national level and now we're going to the olympics in tokyo yeah um amazing. so it was a long time coming. yeah that's incredible i love that um i did want to ask you I mean, this is totally naive male chauvinist perspective, so I'm sorry about that. But is there any truth to the belief that uh, canoeing is bad for a woman in any way? <laughs> no. And I'm, I'm glad. I, well, what's funny is that, uh, like, that, well, what's, what's great about that question is that I actually learned, instead of getting, I learned very, very early on that it's much better for me to tell jokes and to make people laugh than to be angry because that's what they want. But I also learned that, um, that this comment is a, is, is meant to just detract from the real issue. And I'll get to that in a minute. So first of all, I am equally flat on both sides. Canoeing <laughs> has never affected me and I never lost my period. And I have so many female friends that have had children. I actually thought it was a, um, it enhanced our reproductive capabilities because it's like these babies were just flying out right and left. <laughs> and what's also interesting is that our reproductive organs are safety tucked away inside of us, whereas men are constantly exposed <laughs> every day and are at far greater risk for damage than women are. And what was interesting when I was in Mexico City many times, there was a coach, I think a national team coach, very nice man. And he was really worried about my C, my then C2 partner in 2010, Itzel Reza, who was an Olympic kayaker for, for Mexico in 2004. And he was really worried about her doing canoeing and that she wasn't going to have any more kids. And I said, I said, I said, I just, can I ask you a question? I said, do you ride your bike every day? He said, oh yeah, I, I, that's how I coach. I said, you know, our reproductive organs are safely tucked away inside of us. And I'm actually more worried about you doing damage <laughs> to your reproductive organs than I am for mine in the canoe. And he, he looked at me and he's like, oh yeah, that's a good one. That's, yeah. <laughs> so I made him laugh. 
But also, in 1998, no, I'm sorry, in 2000, and I guess it was 2008, this came to a head. Because women's, parallel to this, women's ski jumping had filed a lawsuit against the Vancouver Organizing Committee because women were still barred from competing in ski jumping at the time. So they actually went to the British Columbia Supreme Court wow. for a case. Um, so there were the, the International Ski Federation president actually said on camera that women just shouldn't be doing ski jumping because you, when you land on the snow, I mean, he just painted the picture of just this horrible, bloody mess of women's reproductive organs just splattering all over the place and that that the impact of that landing are just gonna you know <laughs> make us explode it's as if the only reason women are put on this earth is children not to, to change the world or you know you know feed the world or anything like that yeah. so um so it's so all that's happening parallel to this and i got him and so there were actually coaches who were using these scare tactics against athletes. So I had athletes coming to me, I had parents coming to me and some coaches in internationally just saying, hey, you know, my coach is telling my daughter that she shouldn't do canoe because she's not gonna have children and I want my kids to have children and I wanna be a grandparent and is this true? And and even back in 2002, when, when I went to I went to Sevilla, Spain with Sheila Kuyper and when Heather McNee to the World Championships to lobby. And the International Canoe Federation, this is important, the International Canoe Federation came to us and said, can you help us dispel the myth that women, that women shouldn't do canoeing because it'll damage your reproductive organs? And at first, I didn't really know the game that was being played with us. We're like, oh, of course we will. Of course, you know, it's sort of like, oh, they're giving us a job. They want to partner with us. And now that I look back, I'm like, no, they're just distracting us mm -hmm. from our push for equality. And I got connected to Women's Sport International, which is a group of MD, PhD women who do research on women in sport and physical fitness and stuff like that. And they said, this is not a... This is not a physical issue. This is an intimidation tactic and essentially sexual harassment, and it needs to be treated as such. Mm. So, um, so that's when I created an advisory council with Women Canoe International. So I got a lot of top, um, very well-credentialed women and men who are in the medical and um, PhD research science um, kinesiology, whatever, physiology fields and uh, biology fields. And, and just to make a statement that, and, and we have reflected the IOC statement that competing in sports has nothing to do with a woman's ability to reproduce. And, you know, that's not why they're on this earth anyway, but that this is an intimidation tactic and it's harassment and it, it needs to be treated as a conduct issue against um, officials, including coaches who are perpetrating these myths. Um, so we had an opportunity to change the conversation in our advisory panel. We came that there's actually still a link to that on our website to that history. But I feel like that we were a part of changing that conversation to pushing it back into their face that no, this is a conduct issue on you and you just need to stop harassing people. This is such a fascinating um, dichotomy. I mean, I this is 2020 and I'm still really shocked that there are such mindsets in the world and, and I'm really curious what's propagating it. But I, I just want to mention, I'm struck by uh, you, what you're saying and how it resonates with some of the things I've gone through, but from a different perspective, 
Um, first of all, when you mentioned about flipping over right before the buoy, uh, I've, you know, tried out for the national team way back in the early nineties and rowing. And, um, I had the experience at a speed order of, you know, 500 meters into my, uh, my, my individual, uh, set of flipping over, um, in the first 500 meters and how embarrassing that actually is. Um, and secondly, um, I did an earth piece in front of the uh, national, uh, the sculling coach, Igor Grinko down on the Occoquan way back when. And he told me that my earth score was, uh, uh, he basically said the women were faster than me in my earth score. So a little bit reversed thing there. Ergs don't float, do they? Uh, they don't, no. Uh, have you ever rode, before? have you ever rode, rode a 500 meters or a thousand meters before? On an erg, yes. Not on the water. I actually still need to bug Cindy to get me. <laughs> I'm just curious. What still. is it synonymous? Is it similar to a 500 meter, a thousand meter race on a canoe from rowing, or as far as you can tell? Um, yeah, I mean, I I believe that. Um, I'm th I'm not sure. I mean, there's there's constant debate of who's faster, uh, rowing or. or kayak um canoes are a little bit slower time-wise than kayaks um but i mean physiologically i mean there's um people don't think that people use their legs in canoe and kayak but in canoeing we definitely use our whole body um i think it's 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 different i mean we don't in canoe we have one paddle or we're kneeling on one knee and we're paddling on one side and what's the equivalent of a balance beam something mm. that could be maybe 11 inches wide right so we've got those technical aspects to deal with along with whatever conditions we have wind and waves etc um so time wise it's probably a, the equivalent equivalent you know physiological system um so it's just it's a it's a different skill set so a rower is going to have a hard time getting into a canoe, just like a canoeist is going to have a hard time getting into a, um, a rowing shell. But the commitment and mindset has to be the same. So the training protocol is going to be the same, the same type of dedication. So hmm. how um, let's talk a little bit about obsession and um, I guess dreams and how those, how, how obsessed were you with your, you with your training when you were competing heavily um well i would have to say that i'm about as obsessed as anybody else i think that it has to be put into context where i was an older athlete and i was working full-time during my sprint canoe career so i had other dynamics to deal with that my competition didn't so i'd like to put that into context as well um i was obsessed about it mentally but i couldn't necessarily do it as much as i wanted to do physically but i also didn't have a support system in place too off the water or on the water that would enable me to elevate my skill sets i actually got more support from Canadian friends when I would go up to Canada to train. So I was obsessed about it, but I didn't, I think there were some other distractors outside that, that sort of kept me off the water more than I would have liked looking back. 
I wish I would have been a better student of the sport than actually a better student of paddling now than I was back then. I'm probably more obsessed about my training now than I was then, but that doesn't mean I'm doing more. I want to make that really clear. Okay. So, yeah. So how do you think about your energy? So how do you balance between professional and personal and athletic back then and now? Back then, just for my sprint canoe career, it's a great question because that's a time frame where I learned probably my best lessons and my hardest lessons because it's not just about time it's about energy as you said and energy comes from our physical care but also our emotional mental and spiritual care and you know i didn't have very good relationships that back then so i had a lot of difficulty in that aspect because i can't say that i had support for what i wanted to do and this is why it's really important to choose partners that support you wanting to get up in the morning or to do whatever you need to do to prepare yourself on and off the water so that's you know rule number one so i had definitely some bad things happening off the water um, that lessened my energy level i also didn't have support for coach, I didn't have any coaching other than the ad hoc coaching that I might have gotten from Canada. Um, and for several years at the club, there was a coach that was outright working against me, hmm. a, a Polish guy. I mean, he was uh, constantly saying that there'll never be women's canoe in Poland and there'll never be women's canoeing in the Olympics. <laughs> and so I just, I just, I wish I could see him now just to laugh at him. Just not, <laughs> not only did Poland qualify a spot for Tokyo, but there uh, will be women's canoe uh, in the Olympics and Poland has one of the strongest women's canoe team in the world. Wow. So, 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 you know, I went through, honestly, I had to overcome driving up to the gate, getting out of my car, knowing that probably 30 to 50% of my energy levels were drained before I even walked through the gate. So I didn't really have the tools that I needed back then to put things aside or to remove negativity from your life. I mean, you have to really learn to stop community. You know, you're only as good as the people that you surround yourself with, right? That means that sometimes you actually have to start eliminating people from your life. I learned to eliminate negative messaging from my life, even if it was you know, like TV, when back when we watched TV, <laughs> I, I stopped watching really horrific things. Not that I didn't care, but I had to remove a lot of negativity because I had to deal with my own sort of depressive issues or own anxiety issues. I had to really take that time and that space to surround myself with the people who could nurture me and nurture my soul. But I also had to take the time to find the people and the things and the environment that was going to completely nurture my soul every day. And that, and that, that included food and mm -hmm. water and fresh air and sunshine and sleep. And so that, that just, I, but I, I learned the hard way when you don't take care of that, you have time for anything you want to do. It doesn't mean that you have the energy and there are definitely way too many things and people that will come I call them energy vampires. I actually created this little presentation on energy vampires and, um, and it's real. And that's why that's fast forward, you know, to the work that I do with the true athlete project is I really try to talk to people about that, that it's not just about, 
the time that you're spending on the water or in your actual sport. It's everything that you're doing off the water as well and allowing into your life. Yeah, that's that's very true. Wow. Can you talk a little bit more about um, the physical aspects of energy and, and how you, so you I heard you say things that probably largely impacted your mental and psychological state. What about your physical energy and how did you try to keep those energy stores up and balanced across competition and work and all the other stuff? I definitely had a big shift in my diet in late 2001 probably early parts of 2002, I got away from, I was eating a lot of pastas and cereal all day. And I just, it was really lazy. I didn't cook for myself really, but I was just eating a lot of bread and pasta and cereal. And I was just really lethargic. And I mean, truth in lending, I did have an eating disorder for a very long time, dating back to my college years. So I was still struggling with that as well. But then I sort of discovered that, hey, what if I got rid of, I stopped eating pasta, stopped eating bread. I I probably was doing more what would be called now paleo, which it wasn't called paleo back in 2002. But I just really started to eat clean. And I shed probably about... I was probably about 158 and I went down to about maybe 142 within about six months. But I was doing 15 pull-ups at a pop. I could do five pull-ups with 45 pounds around my waist, which wasn't, you know, I know people that are way stronger than that, but for me, that was huge. And I had my energy levels just started to go out the roof. Now, at the same time, I wasn't in that great of a relationship, but this change in diet really changed everything because when you're eating a lot of processed foods and heavy foods, you're not drinking enough water, you're in a brain fog and you feel really sluggish. You just don't, it's not going to produce energy for you and you might not even sleep very well. So, um, so that was probably my first big transition to recognizing cleaner diet pretty strict but also sleeping more and that ha- and I actually did that was in 2002 was a pivotal year for me so that was the first year we had women's canoe events at the national championships they also had the uh, they allowed me they quote quote unquote they allowed me to race in the men's canoe events at the u.s national marathon team trials in the canoe class and so i was the first woman ever in the world to compete in a sanctioned marathon event which was 30 kilometers at the time 30 or 31 kilometers and uh i felt like i had this reservoir to dig into whereas i didn't feel like i had it previously i don't think i would have done they do a marathon on one knee paddling that standard american diet that i was Hmm. eating in 2001 and prior so fast forward to probably 2000 and six, uh, I was probably still, I was gravitating more to what would be considered maybe vegetarian. I was still eating a lot of dairy. I loved ice cream, particularly Trader Joe's, Jim Mocha, almond fudge, couldn't get rid of that. (laughs) But yeah, so, but I probably still had a little bit of chicken, fish, but I was eating a lot more fruits and vegetables in 2006. And 2006 was a big year for me. I did not only I had the best nationals ever. I competed not only in the senior women's events, but I competed in all the masters events as well. So I did 16 events and I 
had 15 gold medals and one silver medal. Damn. And I was just going back. I was just, I mean, I don't think they've ever, they, nobody's ever done that since. It was just, it was just the most, I was just on cloud nine. And for that whole week, it was at Lake Lanier. And I also did, um, I was really just so proud of this year, but that I also did my third Pan American Championships that year. It was later in the year. Um, so that was, Pan American Championships was in October. In September, two weeks before Pan Ams, in late September, I did my second ever ocean race. My women's outrigger team at my canoe club, they really wanted me to do this race on the big island called Queen Liliokalani and it was been 18 miles which had been the longest I would have paddled uh, in, 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 in a big canoe I'd done it high kneel before but they really wanted me to do that race in Hawaii and so I had this and here's so so this goes back to your question about energy where my the club's coach he was helping me some in the boat he he was very good coach Jersey he was a former Olympic coach for the US and he was discouraging me from doing the Hawaii race two weeks before Pan Ams because it's two weeks before Pan Ams, which would have been in Mexico City at 8,000 feet elevation, etc. It's like, why are you going to disrupt your sprint training? But what he didn't really realize is that if you're really kind of burned out inside and you're kind of existentially unhappy about a lot of things, mm. you need to be, you need to surround yourself with people who make you feel good and whole and worthy and to do something that lights a fire inside of you. Right. And so this guy that I was dating at the time, he basically gave all of gave me all of his united points and got my ticket for wow. free and all i had to do so basically I, that was my incentive he was just like i'll get your ticket for you with my points and you can pay for everything else and so i really took a chance and i spent five days having the time of my life with my women's canoe team you know <laughs> hear us women hear us roar you know we had a great race we finished uh in the top 10 in, in one of the biggest long distance ocean races in the world. And I just came home being on top of the world. And I had the best international event that I ever had in my life. And I had, I competed in six events and I had five silver medals and one bronze medal. And in one particular event, the 500 meter singles, I only finished the second half behind the then top woman in the world. And for whatever reason, I was so clean with my diet that event that the altitude was really affecting everybody else. But for whatever reason, it wasn't affecting me as much. And I think it had a lot to do with eating. I was primarily, I was primarily vegan during that time frame, but it, a lot of fruit and a lot of vegetables and a lot of water. And I think that that helped me perform along with the energy that I carried forward from that Hawaii trip. I think had I not gone to Hawaii and just stayed training to do Pan Ams, I would not have performed as well. So that's an example of your energy, Cynthia, that I had to go where my spirit was calling me. Hmm. And it wasn't where the coach was telling me to go. So following your own path and choosing what's best for you. Exactly. Having that intuition to know that. Yeah. A lot of people would have a challenge going against their coach. Yeah, an Olympic coach, five-time Olympic coach It's that, at that, who's taking his time to help me, an older athlete who most people were discarding at the time as not being worthy of their time. I mean, who, who wants to train a 38-year-old athlete for a, a, you know elite competition? 
that doesn't happen very often. So before race, how do you visualize success or how do you, how do you visualize your big goals? Back then and even what I'd still do now, I, I do visualization, but I also do what's called, I do feelage. I call it feelagery. I don't think it's a word, but it's feelagery. <laughs> it is now. So I honestly try to, I watch the top paddlers in the world do what they do. And I try to imagine myself in their body, like my face on their body. And I do I have to walk through my race in my head. So I know it's going to take me. So I know these are what the conditions probably are going to be. This is what, um, these are how many strokes I'm probably going to need to take in the race. And this is where this is, I need to do my start in five seconds. So I actually need to go through my race and that tempo is like a song in your head and you have to go through start five strokes, stretch it out, you know, 30 seconds, do a pickup, 250 meters, do your pickup. So you have to, you do have to do that over and over again. I can't say that I perfected it, but I did try to do that. And for the days that I couldn't paddle, I would set stuff up in my living room and I would, or in the gym at the canoe club, and I would kneel down on a weight bench with a knee block and with a paddle. And I would try to go through that motion on there. And I would also get on a, an exercise ball. People would laugh at me back then for getting on a, like one of those exercise balls and practicing my balance. And people said, oh, that's stupid. Well, now that's what everybody's doing. So um, that's, that's all I knew how to do. And even today, to this day, you know, age 52, I am still trying to be competitive and whatever paddle sport I choose, but I still will sit on a ball in front of a mirror and I'll cut down a paddle and I'll go through the motions and try to feed, I'll try to mimic as much as I can of the stroke sitting on a ball on the floor as I can, or I'll do air paddling and I don't know how to do it any other way. And I, I will watch a lot of video. I do that more now. I, I do now what I'd wish I would have done back then, but I take the lessons of what I didn't do and just try to fill, you know, make up for it now and not trying to have age as an excuse for, you know, I want to keep getting better as I get older. So I, yeah, hope that answers your question. Yeah, it totally does. So speaking of age, where do you want to be in 10 years? I want to be in Tahiti with Scott, my partner, and I want to be paddling Tahitian canoes called Va'a. And I'm hoping that our coach, Mana Tahita, will also be in Tahiti on his massive stretch of family land and putting on Va'a Canoe Clinics and living happily ever after, helping preserve the French Polynesian Islands. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Um, well, I had a bunch of questions around visioning and so that's that's great that you have a long-term vision um and I'm, i just like comparing these smaller visions um with like paddling a race is kind of a, a tactical a tactical way of uh feelagery or imagery to imagine yourself doing your your best effort to get through a race and then having these larger larger visions like you just mentioned being in in tahiti or whatever is 
kind of strategic visions to kind of guide the, the larger um, life uh, objectives that you have. Um, are there any other such large scale strategic dreams that you have in your life that you're kind of shooting for still? Yeah, like I'm still, I am the co-director for the Global Athlete Mentoring Program for the True Athlete Project, which is a nonprofit based out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. But more work is being done out of the, the UK-based nonprofit um, in Scotland and Denmark and England. And I want to continue my role as a consultant with them. And basically with the True Athlete Project, that became an extension of my work as an athlete activist and leveraging sport to fight for um, equality and equity. But then that that expanded into just sort of social justice stuff generally in sports. And then the True Athlete Project takes it even further. Everything that I've been trying to do with my own personal life, which is take a whole person approach to development, mind, body, spirit, but also leveraging that I've used my platform as an athlete to speak out about wrongs in society, um, even in my workplace. And so, and then also looking at sport as a, as a training ground for a more compassionate society. So it's this grand vision of helping athletes, young athletes see that and helping coaches see that, if you if you treat athletes as human beings, not just as machines and cogs in the wheel, that you can actually get greater performance out of them by letting them bring their whole selves to their sport, but also having a life outside their sport and an identity outside their sports, nurturing the body, the mind and the spirit, nurturing well-being, encouraging athletes to be involved in their communities and for speaking up for people who maybe can't speak up but making sure that they're tending to their body and their mind, their spirits through things like mindfulness, through things like getting out in nature, nature and connectedness, walking on the grass, you know, hug a tree. I'm not against hugging a tree, <laughs> but, um, but it's, it, it's a truly a holistic approach. So I really envision me comp- being with the True Athlete Project as a volunteer for decades to come and expanding our vision, not just athlete development, but coaching education and empowering more athletes to be mentors for young athletes. And um, yeah, and just working to leverage sport, um, to, to, to have more diversity, equity, and inclusion in sport. I'm in a sport and I think rowing is probably the same way where you don't see a lot of black and brown people. And you know, why is that? And can we make it open and more inclusive for people that might be differently abled as well? And I think that having that, com- that's a really hard conversation. It's a really hard yeah. conversation, even right to this day yep. where, yeah. So, hmm. yeah. Where do you, where do you think you found this wisdom that being a excellent athlete at the top of your game is not all about just putting in your weight, your reps kind of in the weight room or on the water or with a paddle. Um, but it also, uh, includes healthy relationships, healthy diet, getting out, experiencing nature, having a a well-balanced, you know, being a well-balanced person. Where, where did that wisdom come from? with you do you think because I certainly didn't have that (laughs) honestly I think that 2006 that two weeks before the Pan American Championships going to Hawaii with my teammates being out in the ocean and being around just an amazing just fun nurturing 
but also inspirationally competitive environment. It was just, that was a real wake up call for me that you need more. You need to bring your whole self to whatever you're doing, whether it's your relationships, your job, to your training session on the ERG, to whatever, you know, you cannot jump, you cannot get into a boat angry, mm. nor can you, <laughs> should you come to the dinner table angry? I mean, it's, it's, I know that's pie in the sky, but you're not going to have a very good training session if your mind is elsewhere. Mm. So um, that was my first aha moment, but also just trying to be more mindful about what I'm doing. I'm just, I realize I'm realizing I'm better at certain things and I've actually gotten a little faster. Actually, I got a little faster this year in some ways by not training in the same way. I actually removed myself from a lot of people this year because COVID helped with that. Mm. <laughs> but I actually started to just work on body mechanics and body awareness and I started more mindful paddling for lack of a better word and just really started to enjoy the process whereas I wasn't focused on winning I just wanted to be the best human and put the best stroke in a 10,000 times and then good things can only come with that intention so I had to make sure my intentions were in the right place and my attitude was in the right place. And when I do that, good things happen. Good things tend to happen more times than not. Where's that spirit coming from though? Are you reading books that talk about that? Or do you have friends who help instill that in you? Or does that just come natural? No, it's, it's come through a lot of work <laughs> early on back during my sprint canoe career. Yeah, I did a lot of therapy, but I, I realized that therapy wasn't the be all end all, but I did have friends. I had, I did get some formal coaching from executive coaches for short spurts of time. I also just, a lot of it was my own personal education and talking with people who knew and could do better than me and but also just kind of realizing that like Pam don't cut yourself short here you've got something to offer the world and that you kind of have your answers inside of you if you can just let them come out hmm. ask yourself better questions and you're going to get better answers so I did a lot of reading a lot of listening you know discovered Brene Brown <laughs> stuff like that who's that Brene Brown. yeah she's she is a uh, expert on she talks a lot about vulnerability but she's also done a lot of work on racism vulnerability and oh gosh um, em empathy uh, empathy authenticity etc mm. so um yeah I think I'm just just willing to listen and absorb and learn I I take a lot of pride in that I know that I don't know and I also just allow my opportunity I allow myself to continue to learn and I bring that every day I wake up I will never assume that I know something because I'm always if I'm not learning something new if I don't have a new aha moment in the boat or in a conversation with Scott or with the dog or with his boys or you know, with what's happening outside, you know, I just, I honestly crave just to keep learning and trying to do and be better every day. You know, there's a difference between knowing something. I'm learning more of what Cindy does. No, do, what is it? No, be, do, or some, no, no, do, be, something like that. <laughs> um, you know, I can, I can know something. There's a lot of people that know a lot of stuff, but they don't really do it. 
mm-hmm. and they aren't really it. They, they don't live it. And I really want just to continue to evolve, to learn more so that I can be more and be better every day. Hmm. To me, that's like, you have to be comfortable with the beginner's mind. Sounds like you are. Like, yeah. I'm, I mean, what is, what is it? You gotta have the courage to suck at something new. Yeah, so I've been yeah, trying. Exactly. So we're, I'm doing Bob rudderless canoe. So I have no rudder anymore. I have to do everything with my body now. And that's giving in wavier water. And I'm actually feeling I'm, I'm a better paddler, but I'm still in the very early stages. So I'm mm-hmm. only in my third month of in the, within the third month of getting coaching, but I've only had one month of coaching on the water. So all of that's been virtual, me watching video and just trying to absorb as much as possible and sitting on this stupid ball in front of the mirror and doing the best I can. <laughs> but it does, But for me, it's all preparing me for the day that we actually go to Tahiti to paddle. Right. I don't, do not want to embarrass myself when I get to Tahiti. <laughs> <laughs> Who is that girl from DC? What in the world? So yeah, so like literally everything I do, I feel like it's preparing me just just to go into a completely new culture and just be open to learning who they are, how they live. And uh, yeah. That's awesome. So um, I want to circle back real quick to 2006. Um, so you kicked ass in 2006, took a bunch of names. And then I think I read that. Um, so your diet was really good. You're eating a lot of fruit. You're eating really clean, um, feeling at, like you're at the top of the game. But then I think I read in 2007, you hit a wall in your competition. And so correct me if I'm wrong on that. And if, if I am correct, can you talk a little bit about what you think happened at that point? Yeah, well, this goes back to Cindy's energy thing. So this is where relationships make a difference. But I was definitely burning a lot of candles back then. You can't do 800 million things and expect to do 800 million things really well. Mm. So, But you also can't do it when you have a lot of negativity in your life and that you might have not great relationships with yourself and other people. And I had all of that happening. So in 2007, I actually, I actually think what kind of triggered the crash change doesn't happen until it's more painful not to change so i actually got food poisoning on my way to a competition but i was already so completely and utterly drained physically but more emotionally and mentally that i got this food poisoning and then i was out for two weeks um my i was on the couch for two weeks i couldn't move i couldn't even walk i didn't even go to work and I lost 11 pounds and I was like, Oh my God, my body just shut down because I was eating well, but I wasn't, I had all this other stuff going on, bad people, bad stuff, trying to do too many things. And your body will tell you when it wants to do something or when it doesn't want to do something, it's not going to be on your schedule. So my body decided to tell me that you can't keep going like this and living like this and allowing all of this stuff in your life. I'm going to stop you and it's your opportunity to reassess. So I spent those two weeks hugging my couch and getting up, you know, just to get some water if I could. And, um, and that's when I started to read more for whatever reason, you know, people come into your life 
for a reason. And I believe that there are angels that are brought into your life for reasons. It could be somebody at the C at CVS or it could be somebody, mm -hmm. you know, through an email. But I had been in touch with someone who I was reading a lot of stuff about milk at the time. And so I got off milk because of him. He's called the not milk man. And he, <laughs> not, he's called the not milk man, Robert Cohen. Isn't that funny? But he became a really good friend. And he actually referred me to someone um, who was doing more raw foods at the time. But it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily that I to eat only fruits and vegetables at the time, but I started to just eat real food. And I started to, because my body had to heal, keep in mind that I was actually still struggling with the eating disorder at this time. So all this stuff, all while I'm, I'm kind of still racking my body, because that was how I dealt with stress during these peak years, I was still struggling. So, so what I found during 2007 was I started to slowly creep out of, I had to physically get myself back into shape. And it didn't, I guess by September, I got invited to do a competition in Canada. And um, I really wasn't in that great of shape again. And I had to do a 200 meters, which is just a sprint, you know, less than 60 seconds. And, um, but that was kind of a breakthrough event for me. And, but what I found was that there was the same formula for healing my body was also the same formula for like a formula one race car for high performance. So it's like, why would I want to eat any differently for high performance than I was for healing my body. Hmm. So that's been my mantra ever since is that high performance and healing, it was all the same. And I had to learn to really, I really learned compassion for myself, which meant being less judgmental, being kind to myself, loving kindness started to become a part of who I am. But I learned that just sort of compassion for self, compassion for animals, compassion for the environment didn't happen overnight, but that compassion for myself was sort of like, what kind of foods am I going to put into my body and nurture my body? And it had to be only the best foods. Okay. So if you could distill that down to how to go from 2006 at the high level you were at to an even higher level in 2007 uh, and do a simple kind of formula for yourself in retrospect, what, what would you say? I would say look at where you get your energy from. You get your energy from the physical, which could be your, your physically, the nutrition, your food you eat, um, the air that you breathe, the water that you drink. You look at um, uh, in, environmental, the reducing the energy vampires in your life, computers, um, electronics, stuff like that. Um, mental, emotional, surrounding yourself with, with good people. Um, so looking at physical, mental, emotional, nurturing your spirit, having gratitude, um, eliminating those energy, the, the environmental things that can drain you, like the computers, electronics, being on social media a lot, um, and hmm. that control what you can control. Okay. So you said you've got about 100 boats at your house now, and you still continue to canoe and kayak, yeah. and obviously you love the sport, but can you just comment a little bit about what being on the water in a canoe or kayak means to you and, and how it's a, it appears to be a lifelong you know, exercise, source of exercise for you? I just, I really love being on the water. I don't realize how much I do it when I... In, till I can't do it, like if I'm injured for some stupid reason. But I guess just there's just a weird sense of just feeling 
I don't know, you're, you're at the mercy of nature, as you know, when you're out on the water and particularly if you're out in the ocean, but just the feeling of you're using your own physical body to move and to when you have waves, just the feeling of waves and learning how to surf waves. Hmm. It's just, it's hmm. just, I can, I don't, I don't think about any other things. I'm just totally in the moment. And I love the opportunity just to sort of be in the moment and just be connected to the water. And the, if there's, if there's other people around just enjoying that. And I actually, I really do love competition. I, I really like winning. I can't <laughs> say I love losing, but I, I do like it, but I, I know I have to, but I also like doing well. I don't like winning when I haven't performed well. So I just like being out in nature. And that's why I really firmly believe about nature and connectedness and when I don't have that ability to be out there or even going out for a walk in nature, I realize how much I miss and how how that it does deplete me a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I think we just have one last question for you and that is what makes you happy? Ha. Um <laughs> Lots of different things, I guess. Paddling makes me happy. Being around Scott and his boys, and Scott's my fiance. But being able to make a difference in other people's lives, because I've done some work and made a lot of mistakes and done some really awful things to myself, and um, and just that I've that I've taken the time to grow. And I want to offer that to other people. And when I see that I can do that, that makes me really happy. Well, that's awesome. Just hearing you talk, you've made an impact in our lives. I can tell you that. It's just great to hear all the things that you're, you're doing in your life and the impact that you're having with women in competition. I think that's just absolutely fabulous. And um, it's just been a real pleasure for both of us to speak with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, maybe we'll see you out on the water sometime in Tahiti. Thank you so much. And I do <laughs> hope to see you out on the water sometime. Mm -hmm.